Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, roll up the sleeves and get started here. It's, uh, it's great to have you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Tim Cavanaugh. I'm one of the four pastors. I can be uh, distinguished among the other three pastors in that I'm the newest guy on board. And uh, I'm also, um, not only am I the newest guy, I'm one of the youngest guys and the better looking of the group. Um, that really wasn't funny. I don't, I don't know why you guys laughed at that. Uh, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, we've really been enjoying being with uh, here at the firehouse. And, and uh, you know, I'll tell you what, it's a privilege. It's actually a privilege sitting where you're sitting. I love it every week. I'm actually looking forward to next week more than today. I'm looking forward to sitting where you're sitting so I can hear uh, Rich and Jeff and Brad teach from the Scripture. You know, it's just fun to, uh, and, and I've, I'm realizing it more and more just what a joy it is to hear from the work of other people. You know, what other people have uh, put forth in preparing these messages. And of course, it's a privilege for me too to have the chance to uh, take a turn at sharing from the uh, Gospel of Mark, our series that we're on. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter, Mark chapter 5. You know, Mark is the shortest of all the four Gospels. Uh, it was the very first one that was written as well. It's very similar to Matthew and Luke. In fact, they kind of, folks will lump them together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is kind of in a class of its own, but it's very similar, except Mark, even though 90% of it is also in Matthew and Luke, Mark, uh, he's kind of unique in that he kind of puts a personal touch in his gospel more than maybe even Matthew and Luke do. For example, the other gospels all talk about the Garden of Gethsemane event and uh, the night before Jesus was crucified and how he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. But only Mark, in Mark 14, verse 51, shares a story about the young man who flees, and in the process his robe falls off, and he ends up fleeing stark naked when the Roman soldiers come into the garden to get Jesus. None of the other Gospels share that story. And most historians believe Mark did because Mark was the guy that did that. And uh, it's kind of an interesting guy. Mark, uh, and I've got an, an acronym in my mind. I can't, I can't know for sure if I'll remember it, but uh, Papias, uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, Clement, Justin the Martyr, and John the Elder and Origen, those church fathers all spoke of Mark, and they said that his mother was married, that they lived in Jerusalem, and their house was one of the first houses that the early church in Jerusalem met in. And that was, again, from the early church fathers. His cousin was Barnabas. And Barnabas and Paul were a team. And they went out on an early missionary journey. And uh, you know what? Mark, who's also known as John Mark, that's a Greek and a Hebrew name both, he went on that journey with them. And they got halfway through that journey. And Paul was really upset with them. Because halfway through that, really, it wasn't a vacation. It was a journey, a life and death journey. Paul had been stoned. He left, left for death a time or two, yet in the middle of this journey, John Mark abandoned Barnabas and Paul, he bailed, he deserted them, Paul was really upset and he ran and went home, that's John Mark, the guy that wrote this gospel, and you know it's kind of an amazing thing how uh, Barnabas then at a later date wanted John Mark to join Paul on, a, on, a, on another missionary journey later on. 
after this first one had happened, this fiasco, and Paul was very adamant with uh, Barnabas. He said, there's no way I'm going to take John Mark with us on another missionary journey. And Paul was adamant. And you can imagine why. He didn't want to get out there and get out on the end of a limb and have John Mark uh, not be a trustworthy person to have on the team. And so in faith, I think, Paul refused to let John Mark join him. But in faith, Barnabas really saw that John Mark had been transformed. John Mark had grown and changed. Barnabas wanted John Mark on the team. And Barnabas and Paul got into such a disagreement on this, they basically just split and went in different directions. Paul went on one missionary journey. Barnabas went on a different missionary journey then instead, took John Mark with him. And, you know, sometimes I've always marveled at this, how these two guys uh, would get in a disagreement like this. And I've often thought, who was right? Uh, and I think they both were. I think Paul acted in faith, anything not of faith is sin. Barnabas, in faith, believed that John Mark was ready. And so I think that he acted in faith. But you know what? As much as I respect Paul, I think Barnabas was right. And Barnabas, uh, you know, even when it came to Paul, remember how Paul had, had actually uh, persecuted the church and wanted to kill people in the church and sat in approval when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. You know, the Christians then did not want to receive Paul into their ranks when he became a Christian. And it was Barnabas, whose name means... You know, son of encouragement, I mean, Barnabas actually got in there and brought Paul into the Christian fold, the Christian circle. Barnabas could see Paul's transformation. He could see Paul's potential. He could see Paul being changed and believed it and brought Paul in. But now Barnabas is doing the same thing with John Mark, uh, his cousin. He saw the potential, the transformation, the change. I don't know about you, but I've done things in my past where there's probably people on this planet would look at those things and think that I could never be any different than I was when I did those things. I'm kind of blackballed, I'm kind of in a box, and I can never get beyond my past in the eyes of some. Those folks aren't very encouraging. You know, guys like Barnabas, though, that can really even trust in you and believe in you, even in the midst of your past mistakes, those guys are rightly called sons and daughters of Barnabas, sons and daughters of encouragement. Isn't that the way you want to be? Isn't that the way we really can and should be? People that see the best in others and long for the best in others. People that believe a bird of a broken wing can fly as high if the master heals that wing. You know, Joel said it well too that, you know, uh, even after years of crop failure, he promised, look, turn back to me and I'll restore the years the locusts devoured. And in all of our lives, you know, regardless of past mistakes we've made, God can restore those years. And our broken wings can be healed and we can fly just as high. We need to believe it for ourselves and we need to see and believe it for others. Certainly, Barnabas did that for John Mark. And you know what? As years went by, you know, I think John Mark, even though this great Apostle Paul, who is a great leader of the church, I mean a leader of the ages, John Mark knew that Paul did not trust him. You know, I think that would be hard for John Mark. You know, I mean, of all people, Paul doesn't like me. <laughs> Paul doesn't trust me. 
I think that would be difficult for, for John Mark. And yet, you know what he did? He just continued to be a faithful servant of the Lord through the rest of his life. And eventually, his reputation caught up with Paul, and Paul changed his mind about John Mark. Paul wrote to Timothy, his, his child in the faith, in 2 Timothy chapter 4.11. And he was writing to Timothy, or 2.11, I can't remember now. And he said to Timothy, Timothy, when you come to see me, be sure to bring John Mark with you. Because he's useful to me for service. And I don't know, but my guess is when Timothy came up to John Mark that day, we learn a little bit about John Mark, the guy that wrote this gospel. But when Timothy came up to John Mark that day, when Timothy told John Mark, hey, by the way, Paul wants you to join me to go visit him, because he said, Paul said, you're useful for service. I think when Timothy walked out the door that day, John Mark was bawling. I think he was crying, because he was so touched that Paul came back to a point to see what Barnabas had already seen for years. The theme of Mark's gospel is really summed up in one word, servanthood. And in it, he really emphasizes the, the works of Jesus, not the words of Jesus. And if you go through the gospel of Mark here, you'll only see four parables. But you'll see 19 miracles. And three of those 19 miracles are in chapter 5 of Mark that we'll look at today. And so again, what you'll see in Mark is really the actions of Jesus. And the fact that he is and really was a, a servant. Matthew twenty twenty eight says that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. That verse could just as well be found in, in Mark probably. But Jesus is a servant. He came to serve. And uh, you know when Brad last week was talking about Jesus in the boat falling asleep, sometimes I wonder how can you fall asleep in a storm that's a life-threatening storm, the boat's tar- tossing and waves and water's splashing everywhere. When you read Mark and look at a typical day in Jesus' life in Mark, you'll understand how he could sleep through that storm. He was exhausted and he, was, he did so much to serve people. And the backdrop perhaps of every message we give up here through Mark is the backdrop lesson is just as Jesus came to serve, he's longing for us to be servants too. I don't know who said it, but one man said, maturity is learning the lessons you thought you already knew. And I think that's really true. We probably all know a lot about servanthood, but as we progress through this series, I'm guessing I'm going to be learning lessons I thought I already knew when it comes to being a servant as we study the life of Jesus. Today, though, we're going to focus on a different lesson. Uh, That servanthood is always a backdrop lesson. Today, uh, we want to look at uh, the three miracles in Mark chapter 5. We'll focus on really the first one mostly. And and we'll ask God to continue to teach us as we go through this series. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be together as a church family, brothers, sisters. Uh, I'm just so grateful being here. It encourages my faith. Lord, I just pray that as we uh, look into your word together today, that your word will teach us uh, and that our hearts will long to, to receive your truth. Lord, uh, reveal to us things we've, we need to obey, things we need to apply to our very lives. Uh, Lord, we want to be doers, not just hearers of your word. And so we do commit this uh, message and this time together to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, last week, uh, apparently, one of the GOP contenders 
had a speech that he gave about four years ago that was leaked to the Drudge Report, I understand. Are you all familiar with that a little bit? And apparently uh, they're trying to decide was it a Democratic uh, foe or maybe a Republican opponent that's also running for president here in the Republican platform. Uh, they brought this to the attention of the news media, a speech that Rick Santorum gave four years ago uh, at the Ave Maria Catholic College. And, you know, I was kind of fascinated to find out what it was he said that was making such a hubbub. Because it was supposed to be like a silver bullet that would take him out of uh, the presidential candidacy here. And uh, this is uh, what he wrote or what he said at this Catholic college. He himself, of course, is Catholic. And uh, I just went to the Drudge Report and pulled this up. This is not a political war at all. And in context, he was talking about abortion. This is not a cultural war at all. This is a spiritual war. The father of lies has his sights on what you would think the father of lies would have his sight on. A good, a decent, a powerful, an influential uh, country, the United States of America. If you were Satan, who would you attack in this day and age? There is no one else to go after other than the United States, Santorum said. And that has been the case for 200 years now. Satan didn't have much success in the early days. Our foundation was very strong, in fact is very strong, but over time the great acidic quality of time corrodes away even the strongest foundations. And Satan has done so by attacking the great institutions of America, using those great vices of pride and vanity and sensuality. Satan attacks all of us in all of our institutions. Satan places, um, the place Satan most, was most successful and first successful was academia. He understood the pride of smart people and attacked them at their weakness. That they were smarter than everybody else and they could come up with something new and something different, come up with new truths and deny old ones. Once the colleges fell, the next was the church. And he kind of goes on in his speech. But that was the message that was leaked to the press last week in hopes of taking Santorum out of the presidential candidacy because he believes in Satan. He believes in demons. He believes that Satan has, is an enemy and that Satan is trying to influence academia and has, in fact, has toppled it, destroyed it already. Those thoughts alone, according to some, would disqualify him from being the President of the United States. So I'd like to uh, open by sharing with you this miracle that Jesus performed, casting out a demon out of this man's life. Because as Christians, we do believe in Satan. As Christians, we do believe in demons. And if I ever do run as President of the United States, please erase this message. I did ask that. But it is true, we do believe these things. And there's no doubt that they're true. You know, I have a good friend, Tony Weeder, who grew up in third world Liberia. And he said, Tim, you know, when we read this parable uh, here in the United States, you know, the Western Christian basically interprets it like this. Boy, I'm sure glad that doesn't happen today. Boy, I'm sure glad I didn't live back then. Boy, I'm sure glad, you know, people don't get demon-possessed today. Those of us in third world countries, though, Christians there, we read this and we think, oh my gosh, we do have this enemy. This enemy can possess people. This enemy is very serious, foe of ours. 
We take these passages very seriously, my friend Tony would say. And I think we should. I think that's biblical. It's in the Bible. It's true. And I think there's a lot to be learned from this miracle as we uh, delve into it. Let's start with verse 1, chapter 5. And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. One thing that's kind of interesting to note that Matthew has another account of this same event in the book of Matthew chapter 8. He calls it, they came into the country of the Gardarenes. It's actually a different word. Well, you know, a lot of places will have different names. The Sea of Galilee is sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias because Tiberias is the major city in the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, so Matthew just referred to uh, this uh, area that they came to as the Gardarenes, which is uh, the principal city in this area, uh, Gadara. And then uh, Matthew, however, or Mark, however, referred to it as the, uh, the other side of the sea, the country of the Jerusalem. Scenes. You know, let me just, if I can, uh, do a click, and I'll pull up uh, the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, you know, when I grew up on a farm in Iowa, we raised chickens in Iowa, among other things, and I can remember, uh, we'd always take the guts out of the chicken, and we'd write our name with the initials with the guts, and put them on a windowsill. And then they would dry really hard, it was always cool to see your name in hardened chicken guts, you know. Uh, Sometimes we pull other things out of the chicken and eat them, you know, like their hearts. And that's uh, what I go back to is that chicken gut on the seal whenever I see the seal galley. It looks like a chicken heart to me, and I think of the internals of a chicken. But this is really the center of Jesus' three-year ministry, those last three years of his life. Now, he never grew up in the Sea of Galilee, and we'll do another click on this point. He grew up that away west, 19 miles, through this pathway called the Arbella Pass. And uh, he would actually take that pass from his home on the Sea of Galilee those, in those last three years. He would uh, go those 19 miles to his home in Nazareth, which is just 19 miles away. But his home was, with another click, right there in Capernaum on the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus lived those last three years of his life. He had a house there. We know that Peter's mom had a house there. And wherever Jesus went in his ministry, it would be from Capernaum. When he was done, he'd go back to Capernaum. And when he wanted to go to see his family, he'd walk along the shoreline down to the Arbella Pass and go 19 miles over to Nazareth. Now then, there's this town, Gerasa, on the other side of the sea, as his first ones told us. It's six miles from Capernaum to Gerasa. And it was in that track that Jesus would take in a boat to go see the demonic man who was living in Gerasa. Now if you were to stand in uh, Capernaum, as this next shot shows us, you can actually see that Arbella Pass right there, that V. And I'm standing here in this picture at Capernaum. Jesus would walk along that shoreline to go to that Arbella Pass. He would go down that pass 19 miles to Nazareth. And that pass is also known for something else that it does. It's a funnel. And all the winds from the Mediterranean Ocean will just bolt down, funnel through that pass and descend upon the Sea of Galilee and in a moment's notice cause huge storms on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you go to Matthew 8, you'll see that in the the corresponding account of Matthew of the demon in Gerasa, you'll see that Jesus actually left Capernaum to go to Gerasa. And on the way, the storm struck. The storm that Brad spoke of last week. As he was going those six miles to Gerasa. 
Now then, let's take a look at this next slide. This is from Capernaum. It's actually, the ruins there uh, is Capernaum at the base of this hill. This is the Mount of Beatitudes. It was on top of this little hill, really, that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you know, those who hunger and thirst, and so on. And there at the foot of the hills is Capernaum, where Jesus would have left, and that's the trajectory that his boat would have taken to go to Grasa. And you can see the eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee from this perspective. And one more slide, just to give you a sense of things. Here's the entire eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And you'll see there, uh, Gerasa, uh, right there. That's where, uh, again, Mark said that they went to the land of the Gerasenes. Uh, Gadara is another click up here. And that's where Matthew said they went to the land of Gadara, because that was the capital city. And this whole side of the, De- of the Sea of Galilee, and even the southern part there where you see the fertile farmland, that's all called the Decapolis. There's ten major cities in that area there, and some of them are listed. But this was the area that one of the twelve sons of Israel wanted. He said, look, I'll go in to Israel and help fight the battle and win the country for the Jewish people. But when we've won this battle, we want to go back to the other side of the Jordan and live there. Do you know what his name was? Not Reuben. No? No? His name was Gad. So that's where they get the name Gadara, which is the capital city of that area. And so that's where this all happened. And you'll read shortly about the swines. They never really jumped off a cliff. They ran down a steep slope. And just to the right of the town Gergesa, do you see those slopes? It was on those very slopes that those swine ran down and plunged themselves into the Sea of Galilee. Two thousand of them. We'll read that shortly. And they killed themselves, drowned themselves in the Sea of Galilee. So now, moving on to verse 2. And when he had come out of the boat, having arrived there in, um, in, in uh, Gerasa, he came out of the boat. Uh, immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And you know, it's neat that in this verse 2, it refers to this demonically possessed man as a man. And you know, he was. He's, he's a man. He's created in God's image. God uh, fashioned and formed this man in his mother's womb. God loves this man. And even though this man has become a repulsive person, not only a repulsive person, a dangerous person, he actually, the tombs were near a road. There's a road that went right around the circle of the, of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And it was dangerous walking by those tombs where this demonic lived. But he was a man, and God loved him. And you know, no matter how repulsive people are that we see, and no matter how much we disdain them or dislike them, you know, they're made in God's image. They're people for whom Jesus died. And God wants us to have a love for even the most repulsive of people. And it goes on here in verse 3. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. I mean, not a lot of people hung out in the tombs. This man lived in the tombs. He was isolated. He was alone. Not a good idea for any of us. God wants us to live in community. He wants every Christian to have a church home, a family home to be a part of. We're meant to be social creatures like that and to live together in unity with one another. But this man was isolated. Now, he wasn't alone, though. Matthew says that there were actually two men. 
Mark doesn't say there was no that there wasn't more than one guy. He just refers to the main man that was demon, demonically possessed. In verse 3, it continues, And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. The shackles were broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue this man. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, and of course, those aren't the Rocky Mountains by any means, those are more like big hills, but to these folks they were mountains. And in those mountains he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. It's almost like a picture of hell to me, weeping and gnashing, gashing himself with stones, and again, I don't know if he was just running barefoot, he was naked, we know in one account, if he was just tearing up his feet, but I'm thinking he's getting these stones and actually literally cutting himself. I think the, the evil spirits within him don't want to kill him, but they sure don't mind hurting him. And they don't mind uh, destroying this individual that God had created. Such was their hatred for God the Father, that they would destroy one of his children. And you know, cutting is one of those things that's even prevalent in our culture, isn't it? I have a friend of mine who's a student counselor up in Fort Lupton. He says it's almost epidemic among the high school kids, uh, this, area, this phenomenon of cutting. And I don't totally understand it, but it's almost like, as I understand from my friend, that there's a kind of a self-esteem issue. There's an isolation, there's a loneliness, a sense of rejection perhaps, but there's an internal pain that a lot of, of our kids are having. And it's almost like in creating a cut, it creates a pain that diverts you from the pain that you're experiencing inside your soul. That may be an explanation, and it may be why this, this demonic was cutting himself. Uh, but again, the issues of this day and the issues of our day, as we'll see in chapter 5 of Mark, aren't much different. He raised somebody from the dead here in Mark 5. We need to be raised from the dead. Death is an issue for all of us. He healed somebody. We have our illnesses. You know, we need to be healed. You know, he took the blinds off of the man so he could spiritually see the truth. You know, we all need that too in our day, don't we? As it continues on here, though, in verse 6. And seeing Jesus from a distance, the man ran up and bowed down before Jesus. You know, this is the word prostate. It's the word that actually gives the idea of reverence, awe, and worship. And I don't know if there was a momentary sense of uh, saneness in this uh, crazed, uh, ranting, rave, uh, raving, uh, demonically possessed man where it was his action, the same part of him that ran up to worship Jesus. I don't think so. I think the demons themselves uh, motivated and drew this man up to Jesus and they fell at his feet and it's really in a way reminiscent of Philippians 2.10 that says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe one day Satan will bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord. I think that day will happen with all the demons. And even this day they ran down and they bowed before Jesus crying out with a loud voice. He said, what do I have to do with you Jesus, son of the most high God? Don't forget, you know, these demons were once angels in heaven. Don't forget that these demons are fallen angels. 
They once lived in heaven. They intimately knew the Son of God is there in heaven. They intimately knew the Father. They intimately knew the Holy Spirit. They had never seen Jesus in the flesh before. But as spirits, they identified the Spirit of Jesus as that Spirit they knew in heaven. And they came up before Him and they bowed down and they said to, this, to Jesus, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They knew Him to be the second person of the Trinity. We implore you, or I implore you, by God, do not torment us. You know, demons know the gospel just as well as you do. James 2.19 says, they believe but they shudder. These demons knew who Jesus was. They knew what he did. But they shuddered at Jesus. For Jesus had been saying to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. In Matthew 8, verse 29, that account also gives this thought. The unclean spirit said, Are you going to uh, come and torment us before our time? You know, these demons, uh, you know, there's, uh, what's, what's it called? The doctrine of future things, eschatology. You know, their, their doctrine of future events is good. They know that the day is coming that they will be eternally judged and thrown into the eternal lake of fire, as Revelation 20 says. They know this. In fact, they were afraid that Jesus was going to do it right now. He said, are you going to torment us now before our time? That's from Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, that account. And as he was asking him, Jesus said, what is, he asked him, what is your name? Do you think Jesus really didn't know the answer to that? He created every one of those demons. Jesus knew who they were and what they were, but for the sake of those around him, Jesus wanted them to know and understand the gravity of the situation they were in. Because when Jesus asked, they said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And again, I don't know if that was a moment's sanity when the man said, My name is, and he's going to give Jesus his name, but then the demons interrupted, Legion, for we are many. I'm guessing there was a spokesman for this Legion. Someone that was representing the group. Because he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a military term too. You get the idea that these demons are in a militaristic kind of environment. Where there's leaders and hierarchy, orders. There's purpose, there's goals they're all working for. But for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly, don't send us out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountainside, just to the south of that town on that mountainside. Actually, you can stay on that slide though. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. You know, a pig doesn't have to go too far in the sea. You know, his nose is pretty close to the ground. My guess is that as they were running down that hill, they were tripping and going heads over hill, you know, on those little legs of theirs. So they got into the ocean. And uh, they just ran and kept running right into the ocean until they drowned themselves. We really don't know what happened to those demons after that. Uh, perhaps Jesus did then commit them to the great abyss. Perhaps. Maybe he didn't. Perhaps uh, they went to try to find some more suitable person to indwell. But we'll look at some verses on that later. 
And so Jesus gave permission, they did that, and those who tended them ran away and reported it to the city, Gerasa, and out into the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Now, they were probably three or four miles away from Gerasa. It may have taken several hours for people to accumulate there to find out what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they all became frightened of Jesus. It kind of reminds me of Peter. You know, when they were fishing all night long, the story goes, and they tried to catch fish all night long, they could not catch any fish. Fishing all night, and finally, as they approached the shoreline, without a catch, they see Jesus on the shore. And Jesus said, what are you doing? And he said, well, we were out all night fishing, we couldn't catch anything. Jesus said, just throw your net on, on, that, on the side of the, of the boat there. And they did, and, and they brought in such a large catch, uh, it looked like it was going to sink the boat. And Peter realized it was Jesus. And he jumped and swam to the shore to see Jesus. And when he got there, he said, Jesus, leave me. I'm a sinful man. He certainly had a sense of remorse, a sense of sin in the presence of the greatness of God himself. These people did not have that sense of reverence, that sense of awe at all. In fact, the demonic man showed more reverence to Jesus than these people did when he fell at Jesus' feet in awe and prostrated himself in awe. These people had no sense of remorse or sin or guilt. They just wanted Jesus out of there. They would rather live with swine than with Jesus. And that's true today too. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Verse 17, And they began to entreat him to depart the region. And verse 18, And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. I mean, this man had been transformed. This man had been saved. He wanted to join Jesus. But Jesus would not let him. But Jesus said to him, You go home to your people and you report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the man went off and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is basically everything you see on the east side of that Sea of Galilee, the fertile farmlands in the south side there of the Sea of Galilee, that's, that's all part of the Decapolis. And he went throughout that whole area, all the towns, everybody in the countryside, and he shared with them everything that Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What a transformation! To see someone transformed from not even being able to be contained by chains, by being someone so repulsive, someone who was dangerous, someone uh, who lived nakedly among the tombs, to someone now who went from city to city proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ. That's called transformation. And you know what? We've all in this room been transformed. And you know what? We know a lot of stories of people who have been transformed. I can tell you stories of my own family, among my own kids. I can tell you transformations that are pretty are, are no less miraculous than this one. And that's what's exciting about the Christian life. Is not only being transformed, but seeing people transformed. You know, unfortunately, so often we fall into conformity instead of transformity. I'll give you an example of this. 
my wife's brother, Joel, there may be a few of you know him, but he was from Ames, Iowa, and we were together as young Christians back there in the church, our church back in Ames, Iowa, and Joel gives the story about how he and three of his roommates were at a table once in their, uh, their apartment, and they were all drinking a beer. And they were in between gulps, they were just telling one another, you know, hey, isn't it great that we have the liberty to have a beer, you know, and they were drinking. And then one guy would say, yeah, you know, isn't there a verse in the Bible that talks about how, how you know, alcohol is really good for you? You know, he drinks some more. And, yeah, I think, there, and you know what, I think the pastors love beer. I, I think I saw, you know, a six-pack in one of the pastors' refrigerator once. And they were all drinking like this, you know, and going around kind of affirming their, uh, you know, their episode of drinking beer that night. And just then, you know, the, phone, the door knocks. And my brother-in-law said, instantly, four beers went under the table, just like that. <laughs> that's called conformity. You know, that's what Christians tend to do is we like to you know, kind of just do what's expected of us. We kind of want to do what the group does. Hey, we're all going witnessing. Okay, yeah, you know, I don't really want to, but we're all going, so let's, let's get with the program. And so, yeah, I'll go too. Uh, because that's what we've got to do, you know, and I want to conform to the group because I kind of want to fit in around here. Uh, they might send me out to the tombs if I don't. And so that's how we think, isn't it? But I'm just going to tell you, when you're transformed, no one's going to have to tell you to go witness, and you're going to want to, just like this demonic did. He wanted to go with Jesus. He didn't want to stay, but Jesus told him to, and I'll tell you, I think he with joy went from city to city because his life was transformed. You know, we're not about you becoming conformed to one another here. There's so many different ones of us. We're so different in so many ways. We're racially different. We're age different. I said I was one of the younger pastors. I lied. I'm actually one of the older ones. And you know what? Uh, We've got a spread of so many kinds of people here, so many backgrounds. I went up to Kent uh, the other day. I said, Kent, tell me about yourself. Well, my mom's from Switzerland. My dad's from Mexico. I said, oh, okay. Whoa. Oh, that's pretty interesting. And there's so many differences among us, aren't there? And you know what? We don't need to conform, but God sure wants to transform us into his image more and more every day. He wants to transform us. And then as transformed people, he wants to deal with every issue we have in our lives. You know, in this next miracle, we're not going to go into it for sake of time, but in the next one, in chapter 5 here, Jairus' daughter was about to die and did die. Well, that's a huge issue we face in our lives, isn't it? Death. Well, Jesus said, I'll, I'll go and I'll help. And on the way to help and ultimately raise his daughter from the dead, proving that Jesus has power over, the de- over death, the woman came up to him, bowed to Jesus, fell on her uh, ground and touched his robe. And she was healed of a, of a, of a blood, uh, she had an issue of blood for 12, 12 years, it said. And she spent all her money, she was impoverished from it, and uh, all kinds of doctors could not heal her. But instantly in touching Jesus' cloak, he healed her issue, actually her issue of blood. You know, we have so many issues ourselves, don't we? I mean, we have financial issues, uh, we have relationship issues, we have sin issues in our lives, we have spiritual issues. God really, through these miracles, has demonstrated that He can give us hope. He can give us victory in the midst of all the issues we face in life. 
We've got hope even for death now. We've got hope when we're facing serious illnesses in our lives. We've got hope for those loved ones we know that uh, you know, are being blinded by Satan and need to be freed from his grip. We've got hope. And Jesus demonstrated in these three miracles how he's more powerful than all of these enemies of ours. We've got an enemy, Satan, and we've got issues. But Jesus is greater. To me, that's really the prime message here. Now, I'd like to look at a few verses briefly regarding this enemy of ours. If we can go to this next slide and the next one. Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You know, these Ephesians, they basically fell into the mold that Satan created where they could just kind of fit in and have his value systems, hold his perspectives. That mold exists today, too. And people are in that mold today as well. Satan is the prince, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So in the atmosphere is where these demons reside. And yet he's the ruler of this earth. When he caused Adam and Eve to sin, he got the title deed for planet earth. And Jesus, when he instantly, with one word, commanded those legions to leave, he demonstrated that that title now was his. And he is more powerful than these than the ruler of the air who's taken over the earth and promised Jesus that if Jesus would only bow to him, he would give Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. That guy cannot make that promise to Jesus anymore because Jesus has conquered him. And this miracle proved it and proved it to all who saw it. Let's go to the next verse then. Luke 11, when all the evil spirits comes out of a man, when an evil spirit does that, it gets through... Uh, he goes through Arab places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. Now, no demon can return to this demonic because he was now a Christian. And no Christian can be possessed by the demon because greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. And Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you when the moment you believe you receive the Holy Spirit, he who began that good work is going to perfect it until the day of Christ. But Christians can be demonized. And saints can influence to one degree or another our minds. That's where the battle happens inside our minds between good and evil. And this verse tells me something interesting about those 2,000 evil demons. It seems to suggest that they are restless when they're not inhabiting a person. You know, they're kind of looking and want to be embodied, not disembodied. And uh, so they're looking for people. This next verse says it well too. Uh, in First Peter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And again, it's like a restlessness. And they're looking for someone to devour these demons, our enemies. And the next verse. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be somehow led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And in this verse too, we see that Satan, the battle is in our minds. And he can lie to us, he can deceive us. And to the extent that Christians believe those lies, to that extent, we can be demonized. Not demon-possessed, but just under the influence of demons. But Jesus, as we learn from this uh, miracle today, is more powerful than these, this enemy of ours. In Ephesians chapter 6, 
we read this. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, and world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. These are our spiritual war uh, weapons, our weapons of choice. Now, some of you guys play those games, Skyrim and things, and you get weapons of choice, right? These are our weapons of choice that we can battle this enemy that we have. It's not in the story, just in these pages of the Bible. You've got this enemy, too. he's present today. Let's go on then to these other verses. Daniel, let's move to the next one. You can make note of that. And the next one, June 6, make note of that. Uh, for sake of time, Matthew 8, 29, take note of that. Uh, we'll keep going. Revelation 27 to 10. Take note of that real fast. Okay, let's go on. In Revelation 20, I will say though, it just speaks of the day that the devil will ultimately be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. God will win. Let's go to the next passage. And so we do see in, this, in these three miracles today that God wants to get your life and transform it, freeing it from the bonds of Satan. And then every issue in our life, whether it's death or illness or all the other issues we face, financial troubles and, and pressures and relationship issues, He wants to be there. Uh, I like what Sarah shared in our prayer meeting today. Our hope is uh, in the Lord and in fact our hope is the Lord. And that's a beautiful verse. And he'll transform our lives. I love this passage. Do, not, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor male prostitutes or homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkard nor slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because they have yet to be transformed. But he goes on to say, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were transformed like that demonic man. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is so exciting that we've been transformed. Some of us in this room, all of us in this room, fit into those categories as well. And let's go to one other verse here. Romans 8, in all these things, all the various challenges we face in our lives, we are more than conquerors now through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or future, nor any power, neither height or death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one more verse, I think. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. You know, uh, again, as we go through this book of Mark, we'll see those three miracles. There is one characteristic that was similar in all three miracles. I know we didn't read the last two. But remember now, what did the demonic man do when they saw Jesus? He came up and fell at His face. On their face. They prostrated themselves to Jesus. They fell down before Him. 
You know, what did the, the, the father of Jairus do when he came up to Jesus for him to go back and heal his daughter? We didn't read it, but it says that Jairus fell down before Jesus, prostrated himself before Jesus. And what about the woman who needed to be healed? You know, it said that she went up to Jesus and she fell down and reached out and touched his robe. All three cases, they bowed before Jesus and they were healed. Yes, we have a great enemy, a foe, Satan. Yes, we have so many issues, death and illness and so many other troublesome cares that are burdens that we bear in our lives. But at the same time now, we have a great and victorious and glorious king who only asks us to bow down before him, to receive him as our savior if we haven't. And once we have accepted Jesus as our savior, to begin that journey of Christianhood where we begin to allow him to take every issue in our life and transform it and transform us into becoming more and more made into the image of Jesus himself. And that's what I see in these three miracles. Hope, power, victory, and a great God who's stronger and more powerful than any enemy we can face. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your words to us. And Lord, uh, we just tell you that we do bow before you today. We worship you, Lord. I worship you. My goodness, um, uh, even in our business, I'm well aware of of opposition and enemies and uh, it's not just a fictional thing uh, we've, we've got foes but Lord you are God you're so much greater and we rejoice in that help us Lord be strong in you and in the might of your power in Jesus name Amen